0: This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence.
1: Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots and Spectators' Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Isabel Hardman. It is the Eve We Believe at the Party Gate report. James, in terms of what we can actually say, it's still a pretty static picture when it comes to what's going to be in the report, but uh, you have a situation where we're hearing about what Boris Johnson might have said in a meeting, and also the BBC has uncovered accounts of some involved in the parties.
0: Yeah, I think it is a reminder. That this story, I think, after Boris Johnson only got one fine and was fined for what people generally perceive to be as the most kind of innocuous of the events under investigation, there was a sense among his allies that he's out of the woods now. You know downhill skiing from now on now, i think the way in which the story has flared right back up again not just with uh, as you say the revelation of that picture of boris johnson raising a glass with department communications chief lee kane but also this bbc panorama documentary talking about how you know, regularly bins were overflowing with bottles in downing street and people were kind of sleeping at work you know, the whole story is is going again and and I think the worry for number 10 is that you are beginning to hear that kind of anger from Tory MPs again. And you're not hearing people saying things like, oh, you know, there's an international crisis right now. There's an oh, inflation crisis. It's not the right time for this. And I think it makes Boris Johnson's response to this report more important. Can his contrition be convincing? He's addressing all Tory MPs on Wednesday night. We're expecting the report Wednesday morning. So we expect there will be PMQs, then a statement by Boris Johnson on the report, then he would go talk to Tory MPs, and then he'll then go and do a press conference. Now, how he judges that is very important. It's worth remembering that when he was first fined, Boris Johnson turned up in the chamber, did a lot of mayor culpas and apologies, and then went to a meeting of Tory MPs and struck a much more upbeat tone. And that sent Steve Baker, you know, leading figure in the COVID recovery group, formidable organiser. <laughs> went from having said in the chamber that, you know, the Prime Minister should be forgiven for his error to basically saying, well, now I think he should go because I don't think he's genuinely contrite. So Boris Johnson's got to find a way to get that tone right. And I mean, that you, what you can tell, and I, I think this is still the mood when Tory MPs, it certainly has been wrong the one I speak to, I, I've spoken to today, is the mood is still in this odd place where Tory MPs don't want to do anything, but they also don't want to look like they are condoning what happened or condoning the Prime Minister's actions. So they sit in this betwixt and between land. And I I think for that reason, I still think the biggest single danger to him is uh, when this Privileges Committee investigation comes round and reports.
1: Isabel, in terms of Tory MPs, has there been much movement yet? You've had figures who have previously called for Boris Johnson to go, who then
2: said Boris Johnson should stay, now saying he should go again, but anything more than that? Yes, yeah, so you've had Sir Roger Gale, for instance, coming coming out uh, again and saying that. And then I think you've you've got a a layer under those MPs of members who, as James says, are, are waiting to see how he plays things. And I think. It, there there's two important tests here. One is the obviously the the survival test, uh, whether Boris Johnson can make it through not just the Grey report, not just his response to the Grey report, uh, also the, the Privileges Committee, whether he can sort of survive those things, but also what form he survives them in, whether he just loses even more authority over his backbenchers. They don't feel... Loyal to him in a sort of personal sense uh, that they don't feel as though he's worth sticking with on difficult decisions, uh, of which there are lots over the next few months uh, when it comes to the cost of living. And I, I thought it was really significant that Grant Shapped, when he did the media round this morning, and he has over the past decade been someone who will go out and bat for the government on, you know wickets so sticky they are made of uh, marmalade but on this he was just very clear that he was angry too and at one point when he was on uh, the today program this morning he ended up saying well you know the prime minister will have to explain that himself and so that just shows the the lack of authority that the prime minister has not just even within his own cabinet but even with ministers who have been very loyal to him who are very good at being very loyal to all the governments in which they've served over um, the past uh, decade of, of conservative governments, and uh, I think that's that's something that he needs to think about as well—not just the immediate sort of, you know, life or death of his prime ministerial career, but also. If he is to survive, what shape he's going to survive in.
1: Now, James, of course, tomorrow we'll bring full coverage once that report lands, um, which we expect to be in the morning, and as you've laid out the timetable. Um, in other news today, you've had uh, a report come out regarding the UK's Afghanistan withdrawal. Can you talk us through the main points from that?
0: This is the Foreign Affairs Select Committee report, and it won't get as much attention as it should because of party gate, but the report itself is utterly damning. It makes the first uh, and very basic and essential point it makes is the UK failed to plan for this withdrawal, despite the fact that you know, it knew when the US was planning to leave, it knew that that policy was not changing under the, under the Biden administration, and it failed to get ready for that moment. Then, when the lack of that planning was being exposed, you had a situation where a kind of senior leadership of the department were on holiday and did not return immediately. And then you have this ridiculous situation where no one can quite explain how these animals from this Nowzad charity, you know, why they were chosen to be evacuated, who authorised that decision, why were they they given this treatment? And I think it is very hard not to feel that it is morally obscene that a 200-plus person plane left Afghanistan with only one human passenger on board it when you consider how many Afghans who were in danger because of their support to the British mission, direct or indirect, were left behind in country. Reading that report, is a litany of failure. And it is a litany of failure that should lead to a period of deep, deep reflection in King Charles Street and across Whitehall. And I think it's very hard to be confident that lessons have been learned from this crisis when you consider how cagey so many senior figures in the national security establishment were in the evidence that they gave to the committee in its inquiry.
1: Isabel, do you think any lessons have been learned? I mean, of course, you can compare the response to the crisis in Ukraine to Afghanistan and it was less chaotic.
2: Yeah, but I I mean, I think if we do that, we're looking at it from the wrong end because at the moment, Ukraine is is something that is commanding all of our attention because it is new it is on our doorstep. Um, and I think one of the problems with Afghanistan is that governments, not just Britain, but also the US got bored and basically thought, well, you know, we've we've been there for quite a while. We don't really want to put any more resources in. We want to move on to the next thing, even though actually, you know, it, it might have been a, a much longer haul to something that more people could have accepted as a, as a sort of fair def- definition of success. I think if you look back over... Britain's foreign policy and its ability, the government's ability to learn lessons on, you know, any foreign policy decisions over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, it's pretty depressing. And uh, I think, you know, this Foreign Affairs Committee report is is just the latest very damning report into British uh, engagement overseas and British withdrawal from that. So, um, you know, the there were reports that were looking at uh, the intervention in Iraq and actually the early um interve- the, the early years of the intervention in Afghanistan that had lessons that could have been learned, for instance, in the intervention in Libya. I mean, we just don't talk about Libya anymore, and uh, that's partly also a failure of parliament. There's a lot of people who came into um, the British Parliament as MPs, because they were passionate about domestic policy issues, and that's absolutely you know noble and understandable. But they sort of hoped that uh, someone else would do the foreign policy stuff, and so we often have these foreign policy debates where MPs get the countries wrong. I mean, generally they end up calling every country and every dictator Iraq and Saddam, uh, which was something we were talking about in relation to George Bush only recently on this podcast. But uh, our the sort of general level in parliament of foreign policy knowledge and foreign policy scrutiny is is really really poor and that's another reason why governments are able to to get away with not learning these lessons
1: and just finally james the typical household energy bill is set to rise by about 800 pounds a year in october the energy regulator has warned does this mean more help soon coming from the treasury
0: I think the consequences of a rise of this size are really quite profound. If you don't, you know, if there's nothing done to offset that, just the just the crunch on consumer spending that that will cause, I think, could very well tip the economy, which is not in great shape at the moment, into recession. And so the question then becomes, you know, what does the government do now? When the prices cap rose previously the government spent nine billion pounds to try and offset the impact i I've, I've, you know are they going to do something similar? Do they feel that they need to do, you know, use the same mechanisms as they used that time or, or a different approach but I think what I think the problem one of the biggest problems for the government with this with this is when Alan Greenspan was chairman of the Federal Reserve he used to have a kind of y fronts index and his, his theory was that you know when the economy was in good shape, men replaced their wife fronts regularly. When the economy was in bad shape, they kind of kept them going, even if they were getting a bit ropey. The problem for the government is that this, this current cost of living squeeze is being caused by food and energy. They, those are two purchases that you cannot defer. You cannot decide that you're, you're not going to eat until prices come down or you're not going to heat your home until prices come down. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why the calls for the government to act kind of immediately are going to become stronger and stronger in the coming weeks and months.
1: Thank
2: you, James. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Coffee House Shots. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And to keep up to date with the world of Westminster, sign up for unrivaled insight and analysis with Isabel Hardman's Evening Blend newsletter, delivered to your inbox every weekday evening. Sign up at www.spectator.co.uk forward
0: slash evening hyphen blend.